be uh, hanging out this morning and diving into. And last week we began a new series that has us walking through our mission statement. That is the statement on the front of your bulletin. Um, it's just it's more than just a statement on the front of your bulletin. It, it shows our mission, our vision, our goal here at the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way, which is we exist to glorify God by making disciples who will serve the world. And, of course, the implication is we start right where we are and we go as far as the, the Lord will take us. And um, the reason we are taking this journey is because it's vitally important for us to know our purpose, that we know and understand the direction that God is leading us as a faith family and to know our place in it. What's our place within the faith family? Last week we focused on the existence of the church that... First Baptist Church of Ocean Way exists and the importance of understanding what it is that we are a part of as a body of Christ. And for anyone here this morning that for some reason in your heart you still don't see your need um, together as a local body, please let's start by, by hearing the words of Charles Spurgeon. This was the prince of preachers. Just listen to what he says. He says, I believe that every Christian ought to be joined to some visible church. That is his plain duty, according to the scriptures. God's people are not dogs, else they might go about one by one, but they are sheep, and therefore they should be in flocks. And he goes on and says this. Now I know there are some who say, Well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to any church. To which he says, Now why not? And he answers what their response might be, Because I can be a Christian without it. And then he says this, now are you quite clear upon that? Suppose all Christians in the world said, I shall not join the church. Why, there would be no visible church. There would be no ordinances. That would be a very bad thing. And yet what is right for one is right for all. Why should not all of us do it? That you believe that if you were to do an act which has a tendency to destroy the visible church, you would be as good of a Christian as if you did your best to build up that church? He said, I do not believe that, sir, nor do you either. Listen, what kind of church? Here's a good question. What would this church be if every member was just like me? Now, first of all, we praise God that we're not all the same. So let me just say that I praise God that you aren't all me. Because I drive myself crazy, so if you were all me, um, I'd be gone a long time ago. So I praise God for that. God made us different. But think about this. What if everyone shared our commitment and our, our service? What would we be? Yeah, if you have a conviction, if, if your conviction is I don't need the church, then you need to get a biblical, biblical conviction. You need to get a true conviction. You need to get a conviction that goes along with this word. We need to see the importance of the church. We need to give ourselves to the mission of the church. We said last week, Jesus loved the church so much that he was willing to die for her. Jesus showed a wholehearted commitment to the church that we don't see or we don't feel much today, but we should. Over the last few years, our brothers and sisters all around the world, um, and, and it goes even further than that, have just faced worse and worse um, heightened persecution in fact even the chinese uh, in china the chinese government has began to crack down on christianity like never before two years ago a pastor named pastor wang yi uh, he preaches at the early rain covenant church made sure to prepare written documents in advance of the persecution that he saw coming 
And so what he did is he wanted to make sure that his church would be properly prepared when um, he was persecuted, when he was arrested, and he knew he would be. So what he did is he put out um, a declaration to his church saying, this is how we are going to respond when persecution comes. Two months after putting this declaration out, he was arrested. And then late last year, he was sentenced to nine years in prison in China. I'm about to read, um, he basically called his work, 14 Decisions in the Face of Persecution, What Will We Do? If you want a copy, I've made copies, and you can gladly get one. Some of it you'll read, and you'll realize he's kind of a modern-day Bonhoeffer and that he has taken on the, the communist um, government, so therefore he made himself really a really big target in that way. But the first thing he said, the very first decision of his church, hear this. Number one, do not stop gathering together. Under no circumstances will we stop or give up on gathering together publicly, especially the corporate worship of believers on Sunday. Follow with me here. Our Christian brothers and sisters refuse to give up under persecution what we often freely give up in our freedom. They refuse to give up under persecution, meeting together as a body of Christ, what we are often easily and willingly to give up in the midst of our freedom. Could it be that we have enjoyed so much freedoms that we take our freedom for granted? Could it be that we don't even treat our freedom? I'll never forget a few years back at the secret church that we do every April. And um, they always take um, a brother or, or a whole people group or a nation, country that we're praying for. And I'll never forget a brother under persecution. I forget where he was, but he said this. He said, I want to pray for America. And he said, I pray that you will never give up in your freedom what we would never give up in our persecution. The problem is, brothers and sisters, we've given it up. We've given it up. We've given it over. And yet our brothers and sisters are saying, please, if we had your freedom, can you imagine what we could do? Could you imagine what it would be? Could it be? Could it be that we affirm the authority of God's word and we've done it for so long that we have failed to realize that we aren't living according to it? Could it be that we have somewhere along the way stopped worshiping God and instead we've gotten really good at worshiping ourselves, worshiping safety or comforts or even our own preferences? One theologian said this, the church is meant to be the mirror that reflects the radiance of God to the world. The church is meant to be the mirror that reflects the radiance of God to the world. It's easy to see the radiance of God through obedience of our brothers and sisters in the midst of their persecution. The question is, does the world that we live in, does our world see the radiance of God on display in the midst of our freedom? Do they see the radiance of God on display? They should. They should see God's glory on display in us and through us. So this morning, we are going to see what it means for us as a body of believers to glorify God and how this specifically plays out in our worship gatherings, what we're doing right now when we gather together for the worship of God. And yes, our lives should be consumed with worship. Every part of our lives from when tomorrow when we get up to coming back here should be consumed in the worship of God. We should live lives that proclaim the worth of God. Yet, the Bible also shows us the importance of God's people coming together for the purpose of what we call corporate worship. 
meeting together in this way. And there's a lot of things, and I'm just going to lay it out here today. There's a, I'm going to say some things today that might rub you the wrong way or say some things that maybe you don't like hearing, and I'm just trying to stay true to this. There are some things that we think of when we hear the word worship or church that isn't biblical. It's not anything we'd ever see in Scripture. It's what we've created, and we think it has to be this way. So in order for us to combat that, what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at worship through the lens of Scripture, not through the lens of what we have created it to be. So we're going to focus this morning in Revelation 19 on a heavenly scene that I pray will allow us to see the, inter- the eternal importance and what should be the goal of what we're doing here, which ultimately is the worship of God. I'm going to say this very carefully, but I pray very directly. We are often good at worshiping ourselves. We're often good at worshiping things in this world and even the world itself. We're often good at worshiping our families or our jobs or our sports teams or our possessions. We aren't always good at worshiping God. We aren't always good at worshiping Him, at ascribing to Him what He is worthy of, which is absolute praise. He is worthy of it all. Therefore, in light of Scripture, let us look um, to the Word of God, which takes us this morning to the throne of God, and let us get an amazing picture of the eternal, heavenly, glorious worship of God as it is intended to be even right now as we gather together as a people. So if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 1 all the way through verse 10. Listen to what it says. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then, think about John writing this, then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he, being an angel, said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brother who holds the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray together. Father, we come to your word. And Lord, we pray today that during this time we understand why we are here, what we are doing when we gather together as your 
people, that we would continually see the importance of coming together, of giving ourselves to the local church, while at the same time, God, as we gather together, making much of you. Or that we are not just walking in this room in a self-serving way in order to serve our emotions or our feelings, but we are here in a a way by which, Lord, we are humbling ourselves. And instead of serving ourselves, Lord, we are serving you. We are worshiping you. We are looking to you. To speak to us, oh God, by your word, through your spirit. Holy Spirit, speak. Holy Spirit, work. Holy Spirit, move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So when we think about what we just read, there is one word mentioned in this chapter that appears Nowhere else in the New Testament, which is crazy to think about, is the word hallelujah. It means praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. The first time we ever see the word hallelujah in the New Testament is here in Revelation 19, which is crazy. Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin, no hallelujahs. Jesus lived a perfect life. No hallelujahs. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. No hallelujahs. Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, builds the church. No hallelujahs. But here, here when the world is judged and Jesus is about to return, all of heaven is crying out, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Think about that. 256 chapters with no hallelujah. 7,874 verses with no hallelujah. But yet, brothers and sisters, here we are living in the meantime. We have every reason to declare hallelujah. We have every reason to praise him. And this is the goal of which history is headed. The goal by which history is headed is to the praise of God. God is going to cause history to end in his own praise. Let me say it again. God is going to cause history to end in his own praise. The Bible says that one day every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. It's all ending and pointing to that. And two words will resonate then and two words should resonate now. And they're found in verse 10. And it's these two words, worship God. Worship God. God. The angel told John, don't worship me. Don't do it. I will not accept your worship. Worship him. For we exist to reassert God's rightful place in this world. I love the British philosopher Roger Scruton once advised his fellow philosophers, get this, the best way to understand what people really believe about God is to watch them worship. The best way to understand what people really believe about God is to watch them worship. And this morning, in light of this amazing picture of heavenly worship, I want us to unpack four truths related to what Christian worship or what our worship is meant to be about. What it is, is, what is meant to be. And there are going to be times this morning as uh, if you were in the first service, you you will attest to there are going to be times this morning that I'm going to my face is going to get really red and I'm going to begin to yell and spit might come out of my mouth and I'm going to get very passionate about what I'm saying, but I'm doing it because I love you. I love you. And I want us as a faith family to be the church that God wants us to be. So number one, our worship is God-centered. 
Our worship must be God-centered. It must be. God must be the center of it all. A.W. Tozer, some 50-plus years ago, was asked about contemporary trends in the church and asked specifically what he thought would awaken the church from its complacency. And he said this, In my opinion, the greatest single need of the moment is that lighthearted, superficial, quote-unquote Christians be struck down with a vision of God high and lifted up. Then he says this, the holy art of worship seems to have passed away. As a result, we are left to our own devices and are forced to make up for the lack of worship by bringing in, hear this, countless cheap and tawdry activities to hold the attention of church people. So listen to what he says. Because we stopped worshiping God along the way, now we began to worship people, so therefore we bring in cheap and tawdry activities in order to hold your attention week in and week out. Just think about how true this is. We live in a day where there is mounting pressure every single Sunday to draw in and then to entertain the masses. This is what we've created church to be. We draw them in and we have to entertain the masses. And it's here that we have to understand that it is not necessary for us to bring in countless cheap and tawdry activities because, hear this, God's greatness is enough to hold our attention. God's greatness is enough to hold your attention and my attention. His greatness is enough. We can create activities or we can focus on the glorious one. And Revelation 19 gives us a heavenly and an eternal picture of worship. And hear this, God is at the center of it all. So the picture of worship in heaven, God is at the center of everything. John writes in, in verse a one, I heard the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. There he is. Verse 5, praise our God. There he is, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Verse 6, hallelujah for the Lord our God. There he is again, the Almighty. There he is, he reigns. So that leads us to the question, is God at the center of what we're doing. When we meet together, is God at the center? And scripture demands that he must be. He must be at the center. For God, he desires our worship. You know, here's the deal. Everything that God has done from beginning to end is orchestrated to display and to point people to himself. Everything from beginning to end is meant to point people to God. When we gather together, we've said this a lot, but when we gather together, we are here worshiping a God who is God-centered. God exists to exalt himself. And I'm going to use an example I've used many, many times before, but that might, at first, that might strike you as, doesn't that sound self-centered? That God exists to exalt himself? And of course, we ask this question all the time, well, who would we have God exalt? Would we have him exalt us? That would not be good um, for any of us. And then think about this. It's a good thing for us that the sun and not the earth is the center of the solar system because the sun is 30,000 times bigger than the earth. If the earth were at the center of the solar system, it would not have the gravitational ability to hold the rest of the solar system in orbit and we would all die. 
So if the son was a person, the most loving thing the son could do as a person would be to say, I have to be here. I have to be in the middle because if I'm in the middle, I'm able to hold it all together. And this is a picture. So it is, it is with us and God. We are designed to live and to thrive when God is at the center of our lives. And let me say this. When you and I, and we will, when we try to put ourselves at the center, we will not have the strength, the power, the wisdom, or the ability to hold it all together, and it will crumble in and through our hands. We cannot hold it together. We can't hold it together. I don't know if you know this, I can't even hold myself together, let alone trying to hold my family together or the church together. Can't do it. Therefore, we got to step back and we got to put God where he's supposed to be. And something beautiful happens when we put God where he's supposed to be. He holds it all together. He holds it all together in a way that we never could. So the picture of Revelation 19 is God's people are coming out of the world system. They're coming out of the world system and they're declaring this. They're, they're, They're declaring no one, nothing can compare to the greatness of this God. God doesn't just desire our worship. He deserves our worship. Salvation belongs to him. Glory belongs to him. Power belongs to him. He is worthy and deserving of our praise. And according to this book, he will reign forever and ever. Why would we not want to put God at the center of our lives and at the center of our gatherings? Let me say something else I've said many times. I refuse, I refuse, I refuse to be a church whose philosophy is to minimize God so that more and more people can relate to him. I'm not going to come in here and say, we're going to leave this out, we're going to leave that out, we're not going to talk about it because people just aren't ready for that, and we're just going to focus on a few truths from God that, that he loves you, that he has a wonderful plan for your life, and that one day everything's going to be okay. And those are the only three things we're going to focus on. Listen, instead of doing that, we should make so much of him. We should make so much of him that when lost people come in, they will see his greatness in the way that we worship him, and they will fall on their faces before him. Now, let me say this. I'm not saying that we only just bring lost people in here. It's our responsibility to worship him out there, to worship him out there so people can see there's something different in us, and it will make a difference in them. They will see that I don't know what it is about their life. All they seem to talk about is Jesus, and all they talk about just praising God. And one day... One day, it might not be today and it might not be next week. One day, God's going to do a work in their lives as they see his faithfulness in you. But as we come here, when we come together, here's the deal. We are not going to minimize God in order to attract people. Instead, we're going to magnify God. And we believe that if we truly magnify God, then he's going to draw people to himself. We won't have to do it. God's going to do it. We magnify him, we lift him up, we exalt his name, and he will draw people to himself. Let me keep this going for just a second, for it is here that we see people are not starving for better, for older, or newer music. People are not starving for more entertaining messages or over-the-top performances at church. We don't have to get a step team. We don't have to have people with flags flying around here. People aren't starving for that. Let me tell you what they're starving for. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mike. His, his heart is for the step team. I'm sorry. One day, one day. But here's the point. 
People aren't starving for all of those things. People are starving for the glory of God, whether they know it or not. And if they don't see it here in this gathering, then what are we doing? What are we doing? If they don't see the glory of God as we meet together, then what are we doing? Our worship is God-centered. It must be God-centered. Secondly, our worship is word-driven. Our worship must be driven by the word of God. Just think about, again, what we see and what we hear in Revelation 19. In verse 1 and 2, it says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice, a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Verse 2, for his judgments. What is that? That's a picture of his word. His commands are true and just. Just think about that amazing picture. And then look at verse 9. The angel says, write to this, Blessed are those who invited the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So what's the focal point here? The word of God, his words, his judgments. Then look at 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you, your brother who holds the testimony of Jesus. What is that? Again, the word of God. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the the picture here is that in this heavenly picture of heaven, it's all centered around God himself, but the word is there. The word is is driving the worship. If the word of God is neglected during our worship gatherings, let me say this. If the word of God is neglected, then everything we do will be manufactured. We will have to manufacture everything. For if God's word is not present in our gatherings, then what are we responding to? And the answer is this. We're responding to ourself. We're responding to what we think our needs are, to our own, our own feelings or our own wants or our own desires. I have been to churches where pastors have walked up. They have basically said one verse. They have shut their Bible. They have given their, their um, five points on how to be a better you. And um, then they prayed at the end, and that was their church service. The problem is, brothers and sisters, that is not letting the Word of God drive what we do. We've got to let the Word drive what we do so that we don't end up responding to ourselves. We end up responding to Him. The Word must be central. And here's the beauty of it. When we make the Word of God central among us, when we come in here hungering and thirsting for the Word of God because we've hungered and thirsted for it throughout the week, and then we come in here wanting more and more of it, here's the beauty. We won't have to manufacture anything. We won't have to manufacture anything. I won't have to put on a a dance show in front of you. The point is, we'll be hungry for God's word, and God's word will do what it does. It is living, it's powerful, and it's transforming. And that is what it will do in our lives. Because we will see the glory of God through the word of God, and we will respond rightly to him. I love what Nine Marks uh, is a ministry, and they're, they're fond of summarizing the, uh, the basis of Christian worship in kind of the simplest way. And here's what they say. And here, here's what I pray will be true of us. We read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible, and see the Bible. May that be true of us. We read the Bible, we preach the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, and we see the Bible. Our worship is and must be word-driven. 
And then third, and this is going to kind of be weird for a second, so just hang on. Our worship is and must be mutually horizontal. So our worship must be mutually horizontal. And I pray this doesn't get too confusing. Just hang on for just a second. So in an ultimate sense, we have to say worship is not about us. Worship must always be centered on him. The first direction that we must look as a faith family is always up. That's the first direction we always must look is up. God is our primary concern. So ultimately, worship is vertical. So in an ultimate sense, worship must be God-centered. It must be vertical. Yet, when we meet together for corporate worship, we do need to look around. We need to look around. For the truth is that we are here participating together in the worship of God. And we're participating in the worship of God of a God who has united us together by His Spirit. And so in looking around and in participating, we're reminding ourselves, we're affirming, we're encouraging each other to remember that we are here not just for our sake, but for God's sake. And this is the picture that we see again in heaven. Look at verse 1. It says, I heard, or after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude. So, group of people. Verse 4. And the 24 elders, that's a picture of the unity of the church from beginning to end, the unified church of believers. And the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. This is an amazing picture. And here's the point we are participating together in worship. It's what you see in heaven. It's a beautiful thing. What we see in heaven is not a bunch of individuals standing alone by themselves with their arms crossed, worshiping God. And it's, it's a picture of community, a massive group of believers. Listen, we are not a bunch of individuals. Hear this. We are a community gathered together to make much of him. We're a community gathered together to make much of him. And when we gather together as a faith family we are doing so not individually, we're doing so collectively, we're doing so corporately. Listen, I say this, that, um, you know, make sure that when we're here, we look around and please don't hear what I'm not saying. I've heard people come up to me, I've had people come up to me and go, you know, all this stuff you talk about is worship is good, but I, I just look around, I just don't see people worshiping the way I like to worship. And I always say this, well, I'm sorry, I was too busy worshiping God to look around and to observe what you were observing. And so in one standpoint, listen, if you ever let somebody keep you from worshiping God because your eyes are on them, then your eyes are on the wrong person. So let me just say that ultimately. If, if you ever don't do what God tells you to do because of somebody else around you, your eyes are on the wrong one. Because here's the deal. There is no, one day I won't be able to stand before God and say, God, I was going to do it, but Brother Curtis looked at me wrong. And he looked at me kind of, and I, Brother Curtis, you know I'm going to, he looked at me wrong, so I just didn't do it. What do you think God's going to say? you think God's going to say, don't worry, I'll deal with him. Or do you think God's going to say, as I hear him in my mind oftentimes, you idiot. It's about me. It's about me. It's not about him. So in one standpoint, there's that. It's about him. But here's also, in our worship, we're not pretending like the person beside us is not there because they are there. And they're there for a reason. And it's not to keep us from worshiping God. It's to allow us to worship God in a greater way alongside of them. 
And I don't mean that we all worship in the same way. God hasn't wired us all to worship in the same way. God has wired us to worship different. So the point is not you have to worship this way, this way, this way. The point is worship God. However he wired you to worship. Some of you are like me. You're um, wound tight and you just get after it and go. Others of you are more meditative and you just think about the words as, we, as others are singing them. You just think about them and meditate upon them. The point is that we are worshiping God in the way that he designed and wired us to worship him. So in doing so, we're not just participating together, we're edifying one another. We're encouraging one another in the way that we worship God. One author um, identifies seven ways that we can all edify our local church. Listen to what he says. He says seven ways. Number one, join the church. Join the church. As we said last week, don't just date the church. Join the church. Number two, make your local church a priority. Make it a priority. Number three, I love this one, try to make your pastor's job a joy. Please, I would welcome that. Number four, find ways to serve. Find ways to serve the Lord. Don't sit around going, I wish I knew how to serve. I'd talk to someone. Or we have this thing right out front um, called a service um, our, our service list or ministry list that tells you all the ministries by God's grace that we have and um, look through them and see if maybe God might be calling you or ask this, God, how can I serve the body of believers or the world in and through the church? And if God gives you something that's not on here, let's do it. Let's see what it might look like for the glory of God. Serve. serve. Find ways to serve. Number five, give. Number six, connect with people, living out the one another verses. So connect to people by which you encourage one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another, do those things, grow together. And then number seven, share your passion for Christ and for his church. I was talking to a pastor this week. And you know, when pastors get together, it can be quite comical because the same questions get asked over and over again. It's kind of, how are you doing? How's your church doing? Are you growing? Are you doing these kind of things? You know, it's just an ongoing circle. But this pastor was like, guys, I don't mean to like brag, but let me just tell you what God's doing. And he talked about over the last couple months, they've had 30 people come and join their church and be a part and, and, and give their lives to Christ. And, but then he said this, it's all happening because of basically one person. One person has got so excited and so fired up about what God has done in their life and what God is doing in our church that he's telling everybody. Everywhere he goes, he's telling people. He's telling people um, how God has saved them. He's telling people how God is using the church to grow him. He's telling people how he's able to serve in the church and what God is doing. And he said he's just going out and people are just showing up because they, they're saying to themselves, I want to be a part of what this guy's a part of. I want to experience what this guy is experiencing. And here's the point. Brothers and sisters, we should get excited about what God is doing here at First Baptist Church of Ocean Way. Amen. We should get excited. I'm going to say something I said last service, and if it gets me in trouble again, then so be it. But if you're here today and you're miserable, there are other churches that you pass on the way. You can be just as miserable there. You, you can be. Listen, God doesn't want you to be miserable, but here's the thing. You don't have to be miserable here either. You don't have to be miserable. If you're miserable here, stop making it about you and start making it about him. 
And if you make it about him, something begins to happen by which our misery goes away and we get excited to be a part of what God is doing in our lives and in the world. Do we really realize what we are a part of? That we are a body of worshipers. That there's, there's some graces and there's some blessings that God gives that, only, that he only gives through us meeting together and worshiping together. There's just something beautiful about this. Don't give it up. Understand the beauty of it. Get excited about it. So our worship is mutually horizontal. And then lastly, our worship is and must be inevitably missional. Our worship is inevitably missional. I love the words of John Piper. He said this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. So let me say it again. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. He says this, worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. And he goes on, he says this, When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a, tempor- a temporary necessity, but worship will abide forever. There's one day where the mission of the church will be no longer. We, we won't be in heaven one day, God saying, hey, go find lost people. There won't be any lost people there. So therefore, our ultimate goal then will be worship God. Worship Him. Give yourself wholeheartedly to Him in a way that you could not even do here. So although worship is the ultimate goal, not missions, our worship will be inevitably missional. Meaning, think about this, part of what we are doing in our worship is rejoicing in the salvation of God. Look at verse 1 again. Halfway through it says, hallelujah. So the multitude are saying this, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. A part of our mission is to proclaim to a lost world around us as far as we can go that salvation belongs to our God. That's part of our mission that we proclaim to people, God has saved me and thankfully he can save you too. There are people in your life right now that you have written them off and you, have, you are believing right now, and I'm believing right now that God can't save them. You have people in your life that you say God could never save them. How do I know that? Because we're not telling them about the gospel. We're not telling them. We're not sharing the gospel with them. So we have convinced ourselves, or Satan has convinced us, that God's not going to save them. So we refuse to tell them, brothers and sisters, if God can save you, he can save them. He can save them. And the beauty is that the worship of God is the fuel of our mission. We worship God. We get excited about his salvation. And then we go and we tell people what God has done for us. For God is calling us above all else to be a people unified and wanting to proclaim and share his greatness to the ends of the earth. The question is, read Revelation 19 and ask yourself, will you join the global chorus of brothers and sisters who lift high the name of the one who saved them and saved you from your sin? Will you join them? Will you join together with us? Or are there barriers that are keeping you from giving God what is rightfully his, which is praise, glory, honor, and worship? There's an amazing joy that comes when we're honest before God. And we say, God, I have blown it. God, I am not who you have desired me to be. I'm not who you called me to be. I've missed the mark more than I could ever begin to confess. But when we begin to do that, we put ourselves under a waterfall of God's grace. 
and his grace begins to pour on us in a way by which our shame is removed, our guilt is taken care of, and all of a sudden we find ourselves wanting nothing more than for him to be lifted higher and exalted further. Oh, that that would be true in our lives. That we would meet together wanting God to be the center of all that we do. I'm going to end today with words of Donald Whitney because um, just love um, this man and love his heart. And he says this, and this is so powerful. Just think about your life. Think about this past week. He says, how is it possible to worship God publicly once a week when we do not worship him privately throughout the week? Can we expect the flames of our worship of God to burn brightly in public on the Lord's day when they barely flicker for him in secret on other days? And then he ends with with this absolute dagger. Isn't it because we do not worship well in private that our corporate worship experience often dissatisfies us? Because we aren't worshiping God out there in our private lives that when we come in here, what we do here disappoints us. Listen, this isn't something we do and come and we worship once a week. This is something you worship all, all day, every day. Worship the Lord. When you mess up, you fall upon His grace and you worship Him for forgiving you. And you keep worshiping Him. And then guess what? As you worship Him throughout the week, you come on Sunday morning and you are just like a cup filled up and flowing over and just running over and you are just ready to worship God together with other brothers and sisters. Oh, that that would be true in our lives. That the worship that we see here is absolutely God-centered. That it is driven by the word of God. That it is encouraging other brothers and sisters to join with us, but it ultimately will lead us to a world around us that needs to know that our God saves. Our God saves. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to enter into this time of invitation and consecration where we say whatever it is that God is telling you to do, that you would do it. Maybe you are here today and you, up until this point, have not been a worshiper of God, meaning you have never trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord. May today be the day of salvation for you. Maybe you're here today and other things have caused you to take your eyes off the one who is worthy of your worship. May you give up those things and let go of those things for the sake of holding to the one who is worthy now and will be worthy forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we just call upon you. And we think about those words in Revelation 19.10 from the angel to John. Don't worship me. Don't worship anything that's not worthy of worship, but worship him. Worship God. Worship Him alone. He is the only one who will forever be worthy of our praise. God, remind us that we spend so much time each and every week worshiping things that are not worthy. And we worship things that can never and will never save us. Can't hold us. Can't protect us. Can't keep us. Can't minister to us. But yet, Lord, you can do all of those things. Why would we not want to keep you at the center of what we do here? And why would we not want you to, 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 keep, to keep you at the center of our lives throughout the week? God, help us, Lord, to worship you better. Privately, publicly, for the sake of your glory. God, I pray that you would help us to see that there are people around us that for some reason, Lord, we have convinced ourselves, Satan has convinced us that you cannot save them and we have kept our mouths closed. 
Lord, help us to get so excited about what you have done for us, what you're doing here through us, God, that we Lord, are just eager to tell people just how awesome you are, that salvation belongs to you. And then we invite them to join us in worshiping you. We'll just finish this time together today in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.